Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 20. Uh, This evening we will be studying uh, what is perhaps the most controversial passage in the book of Revelation, if not the whole Bible. Um, One of the passages that have led to these different views on the millennium, uh, the thousand years. And uh, there are two issues really that cause confusion. One is what's the relationship of chapter 20 to chapter 19, because in chapter 19 we have Jesus coming on a white horse and defeating all of his enemies. And then also you're going to hear about uh, his saints reigning with him for a thousand years. I read that as our call to worship. And I think if we, if we understand what's going on with those two uh, ideas, it makes a tremendous difference. This book was written to Christians in the first century to help them. And it was relevant to them. And it's relevant to us because the real focus of what's going on is now, the time period between Jesus' first and second coming. So um, I thought this would fit in well with what we heard this morning. And uh, we're taking a little break in the book of Judges, but we'll be resuming that very shortly. So Revelation chapter 20, this is the word of God. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. And then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breath of the earth and they surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Amen. This is the word of God. May he bless it to us as we consider it together this evening. 
Well, last weekend we were visiting with some Christian friends, and um, the wife uh, said to me, uh, I have two questions for you. Uh, the first one is, when is the millennium? Uh, millennium, Latin for thousand years. That's uh, what we're dealing with in this passage. And then the second one is, uh, how long until Jesus comes again? Uh, let me say that a different way. Uh, how many times will Jesus come again? That was her question. How many times will Jesus come? And um, you might be thinking, well, why were those her questions? I said to her, how, how much time do you have you know, for this answer? Um, but, but she puts her finger on something that causes great confusion uh, in the church. And this passage has, is, is one that has been argued over uh, intensely. And sincere believers can disagree on this. So uh, I want you to know I'm not saying this is a salvation issue. But I think sadly what's happened is that confusion about passages like this uh, have led, uh, this, was the, this was the case uh, for my friend, to Christians just saying, you know what, uh, I'm just going to put this aside and I'll forget about this book. Maybe in heaven someday I'll figure out what it means, but really don't want to get too uh, into this because uh, it's just too confusing. And what was interesting is she really put her hand, uh, her finger, on the, the, the key issues. Um, one of the issues here is what's the relationship between what we're reading in chapter 20 and what happens before it in chapter 19? Because as I said, in chapter 19, Christ comes again. He faces all the enemies and he destroys them. It's very clearly Christ writing on a white horse. And then this happens. So this is the question, right? When is this happening? When is the millennium? And then we read about these uh, saints that are reigning with Christ on these thrones. And where is that going on? And how many times does Jesus come back? Well, as we look at the passage, and this is why I thought it was so helpful given what, um, what we heard this morning, is that if we rightly understand this, there's something profoundly helpful about it. It actually tells us something about the time we're living in now, and that is that we are living during the time in which Jesus is doing his great work of undeceiving the nations. And so we have an opportunity to participate with him in that work. And this passage encourages you to join him in that work, even as we keep our eyes on the promises of his word. And so, children, if you want to draw a picture, you might draw a picture of this giant dragon and then the great chain that wraps up the dragon. And uh, let's listen for what, uh, what we think that means. I might say just briefly, I preached through the whole book of Revelation back in 2013. So if you want a fuller treatment of this passage, you can go back and listen to that on Sermon Audio. I'm not going to try to deal with everything here, not, not all the, the, the uh, interpretive uh, ideas that I disagree with. I'm just trying to tell you what I think the passage is saying to us. Well, the first thing I want you to notice is that Satan's power to deceive the nations has been broken by Jesus. And we see this in verses 1 to 3 of the text. So we see this angel coming down from heaven. Some commentators actually think this is a picture of Jesus. But typically, um, if Jesus is described as an angel, it's the angel of the Lord. So I think here we have this representative of Jesus who comes with this great chain in his hand. And he comes to bind the dragon. Now the text tells us who the dragon is. And the dragon's pictured throughout this book. He is uh, the devil or Satan. Uh, those words mean accuser and adversary. And you can go back in chapter 12 and see when the dragon is introduced. There's no question this is a picture 
of the devil. And one of the things you have to remember in interpreting Revelation is these are pictures, these are symbols. They're, they're not reality. There isn't actually a giant chain. There isn't actually a giant dragon. There's something far worse. Uh, the, the dragon is there to try to give you some sense of how horrible this power of evil is, but the reality is far worse than the picture. So it's symbolic. And the most common approach to understanding when is this happening, when is this binding happening, is to read the book as a strict chronology. So people read chapter 19, Jesus comes again, it's the end. So people think, okay, so what's happening in chapter 20 must be happening after Jesus returns. And so they're thinking this is some kind of an earthly kingdom that's set up sometime after the second coming. But that makes the mistake of not realizing the book is not a chronology. In fact, what the book is doing is looking at the whole period of time we're living in now, the period between Jesus' first and second coming, and it culminates in his second coming, and it works through that whole period of time multiple times in the book. You call it progressive parallelism. It would be like if we took, if we had a, a precious stone and we looked at it from one angle, then we turned it. We looked at the same stone from a different angle, getting the light in, and we turned it again. That's what's going on in the book. And so this is why there's several times where it looks like we come to the end, and then we keep going. And so people trying to build a chronology get totally confused about what's going on in the book. And, and you can see this. You go on the Internet, guaranteed, somebody has a timeline that will show you all this stuff that's going to happen. It's all made up, though. It's not what the Scripture is telling us. So what we have here is another go-through. We're starting again to look at this whole period of time in which we live in now. And so I would argue, again, we, the, the Bible interprets the Bible. When was Satan bound? Satan isn't bound after the second coming, but in the first coming of Jesus. That's why this is the time we're living in now. And I put in your outline a number of cross-references. Matthew 12, verse 28. Jesus said, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. It's the exact same word, word in Greek. He binds the strong man. Then he will plunder his house. Jesus was the one coming, binding the strong man. Or in Luke chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, when the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Again, this idea that the devil has been bound. Or in John chapter 12, verses 31 and 32, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself. There Jesus speaking about his ministry, his impending death. This is the, the devil being cast out. Or Colossians 2, verse 15, having disarmed the principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in the cross. There in Jesus' death and resurrection, he has triumph over evil. So commentator Lewis Brighton says, according to the four gospels then, the devil was bound, conquered, judged, and cast out as a result of Jesus' saving ministry culminating in his death on the cross and his resurrection. And you may be listening to this and saying, pastor, how can you say the devil's bound? We look, we look around the world and we see wars and we see death and destruction and natural disaster 
and persecution and sex trafficking and all the rest of it. How can you say the devil is bound? Well, recognize, what does it say in the text? He cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should not deceive the nations anymore till the thousand years were finished. This is speaking about a particular way in which the devil has been bound. And that is in his ability to keep the nations blinded in darkness and unable to respond to the gospel. You realize for how much of human history that the number of people who knew and worshiped the true God was so small as a fraction of the population on the planet. But something happened in the ministry of Jesus. The devil's ability to keep the world locked in darkness, not knowing the truth, was broken. And that's what has unleashed the ministry of the gospel going around the world. Dennis Johnson commenting on this said, the resurrection of Christ is the great spiritual watershed for the nations. Satan no longer has free reign to deceive the nations. Satan was bound in the ministry of Jesus. And so if that happened at the beginning of the thousand years, right, then that suggests that a thousand years is is a figurative number used to describe the period of time we are in right now. 10 uh, to the third power, 10 cubed. 10 is a number for completion in, in, uh, in the Bible. And so you have 10 times 10 times 10. Uh, this is the full number of years. It's just meant to be a figurative way to speak about the time that we're living in now. Uh, in, in 2000, uh, was my, my first year taking seminary classes. And um, I'm sure Wes remembers this well. Uh, Wes was still going to church down here, although he was in medical school in Indianapolis. And so uh, Sunday after the service, uh, Wes would drive me up to his house, uh, his apartment, uh, right by the medical school in Indianapolis. And uh, we'd stay there and then uh, get up at like 4.30 in the morning. And he'd drive me to the airport and he dropped me off, and I'd have uh, just a a carry-on bag, and I would walk into the airport, I would walk straight to the gate, I would arrive 15 minutes before the flight left at like 5.15, I would walk right on the plane, and I would fly, and I'd be in a class in Pittsburgh after I took a couple buses at 9.30 in the morning. And uh, you couldn't do that, if you wanted to do that, right? I, I don't advise it, but you couldn't do that, even if you wanted to do that. Because in 2001, on 9-11, when the planes were commandeered, air travel has never been the same since that time. It's all different now. And, and, and you can only take so much toothpaste, and you can only do, I mean, all, all, all the haranguing that goes on that we have to deal with. It's never been the same. And that's what this text is reminding you and me. Since the resurrection of Christ, the world has never been the same. And so often, I think, when we, we think about that, we think, well, sure, it's different because I can be saved. But that, that's not what this text is focusing on. It's not focusing on your personal salvation. It's focusing on what this means for the world. Because in the resurrection of Christ, Satan was bound. And now the gospel's unleashed to go around the world. 
And no longer can men and women be trapped in darkness as they had for so long. And we see this going on all around us. I just read an article this week about the, the fact that in Muslim countries in Middle East and in North Africa, there are conversions happening right now amongst Muslims that are absolutely unprecedented. And this, is going, you know, this kind of thing has been going on uh, since Jesus rose again. And we can rejoice in the fact that the gospel is going all over the world. So Satan's power to deceive the nations has been broken by Jesus. Secondly, then, understand that you have the privilege of participating with Christ as he undeceives the nations. So in verses 4 to 6, we, we see this idea. In verse 4, it says that there uh, are some thrones, uh, that uh, I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. So where are these thrones? This is one of the questions. Now, this is drawing on the, the vision of Daniel in Daniel chapter 7. And if you uh, want to look at that later, you'll see there are thrones. There is an ancient of days. Uh, there are books that are open and read. And that's what the author's drawing on. I put one a part of that in your outline, Daniel 7 verses 9 and 10. I watched till thrones were put in place and the ancient of days was seated. His garment was white as snow and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels like a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were open. And, and what we need to realize is that, uh, and this is, a, this is again, this is a point of contention. That the, the, the most common interpretation out there would see these thrones and this kingdom being set up on earth. But whenever this, this kind of imagery of the thrones is used in the Bible, it's a picture of what's going on in heaven. And we actually have some confirmation to that because you see it says, Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God who had not worshipped the beast or his image. So he's seeing martyrs. And these martyrs are pictured earlier in the book, and now these martyrs are sitting on thrones. They're, they're joining Jesus in this judgment. And it's not just the martyrs. It says it's all of those who did not get the devil's mark on their head or their hands. Again, for the sake of time, I'll just summarize that. But in this book, you're either marked out as belonging to the lamb or you're marked out as belonging to Satan. Not, not a physical mark. It's just a way to refer to uh, who you worship, who you serve, who you're owned by. And this is speaking then of all believers who have died as he sees them reigning and ruling with Christ. And what does it say? In verse, at the end of verse 4, they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now, this is a little confusing because in verse 5 it says, but the rest of the dead did not live until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ. So what's going on? First resurrection this is the only place in the whole Bible it's mentioned. So it's tough to know for sure. Uh, we can't cross-reference it. Second death, that's pretty clear. It's used four times in Revelation, and it's clearly pointing to final death, lake of fire, uh, the final judgment. And so this first resurrection is the antidote to the second death. What is it referring to? I think the, the best explanation is what John, what John is seeing here in this vision 
are those Christians who have died in the faith, risen, living in heaven. It says they reign with Christ a thousand years. Where's Christ? During this period of time, Christ is reigning from heaven. Uh, so this is, this is are the saints translated to heaven. And when Jesus comes again, we'll get to this in a minute, then there's going to be a general resurrection and there's going to be a final judgment. And so when it says those uh, who died, uh, the, the dead who did not participate in the, in the first resurrection, they didn't live again, right? Those, those are unbelievers. And, and he doesn't see the unbelievers reigning with Christ in heaven during this thousand-year period of time. But don't miss the point here, because what he's saying here is because we will reign with him in heaven when we die, we can reign with him now as we participate with him in the gospel ministry that is undeceiving the nations. This is the massive work that he is doing. Vern Poitras, speaking about this, says, it turns out that it is impossible to defeat Christians. Even when demonic forces are ravaging the church, they are only establishing Christians in positions of real and permanent power. You see what he's saying? You're ministering, and especially in the first century, and you die for that witness to Christ. Does that take you uh, out of the picture? Are you no longer uh, able to do anything? No. You just go and join Christ and this great host in heaven, reigning victoriously in heaven, awaiting Jesus' return. You cannot be silenced. And this is a wonderful promise to the church because this ministry of undeceiving is given to the church. The church has the keys to the kingdom. Uh, The church uh, preaches the gospel, administers the sacraments, administers church discipline. The the church is the institution that Christ has put in place uh, to to do this great work. Now, we might say a thousand years, that's that's an awful long time. Well, in in our years, it's been even longer than a thousand years. And and why is it that it's taken so long? Uh, Why are the saints only reigning in heaven? What are we waiting for? 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9 remind us this. And there, Peter's speaking about this issue of how long we have to wait. He said, but beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's it. The Lord is not coming back until all of his elect, when it says not willing that any should perish, any of his elect, That's clear from the context. And that's a wonderful encouragement. He's not going to come one minute too early so that one of his chosen ones is missed somehow. He's going to come back when the full number of his elect have been brought in. It's a very famous uh, hockey coach who's now deceased who coached at the University of Wisconsin for years and years. And he was well known for this saying. His saying was, it's a great day for hockey. And uh, he said that so often that that is painted inside uh, UW's rink. It's a a great day for hockey, Bob Johnson. And uh, I honestly don't necessarily agree with that. I'm I'm, I'm like 95% sure on that. But it may or may not be a great day for hockey. And that was the joke, that for him, every day was a great day for hockey. But we can say with absolute certainty, today is a great day to be a Christian. It is a great day to be a Christian. It is so hard for us to remember that 
when we read about all the garbage going on in the world and all the junk that Christians are assailed with constantly. And this passage is here for you to remind you, this is a great day to be a Christian because right now, Jesus Christ has bound the devil and the devil cannot keep the world in darkness. And Jesus is doing that great work of undeceiving the nations and he invites you and me to participate in that work. This is a profound privilege that you have. Well, thirdly, we see here that there will be a, a time of intense persecution just before Jesus returns. And we see this in verses seven and eight. Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. Uh, this is also, uh, he also says this in verse three, where he says, uh, he's bound for a thousand years, but after these things, he must be released for a little while. So this suggests that right before Jesus comes again, there is going to be a brief time of, of, perse- of increased persecution, of increased activity, and uh, that this is leading up to when Jesus comes again. And, and it seems to suggest in the text that this is sort of this final act of desperation by a defeated foe. Uh, if you look Uh, In verse 8, it says, And he will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them to battle, whose number is as of the sand of the sea. One of the things to realize is that um, when it says that that he will gather them to battle, in the original language, it's the battle. And, And this is referred to in several places in the book. It's always the battle. And this is to help you understand, there's not multiple battles. Again, if you try to read this as a chronology, it's like, wait, we're fighting a battle again? Go back to, go back to chapter 19. There's nobody alive after chapter 19. There, there's no enemies. It says the birds ate their carcasses, they're all gone. So, so you cannot read this as a straight chronology. We're going back again and we're going to see the same battle that we've already seen. There's only one final battle. So to answer my friend's question, he's just coming once and his second coming, and there's one battle at the end of that time, and it's going to be massive. Now, if you want to know where is this coming, well, Gog and Magog, this is drawn right out of the book of Ezekiel, uh, Ezekiel's chapter 38 and 39. I put one reference in there from Ezekiel 38, 16, and there the prophet says, you will come up against my people Israel like a cloud, they're speaking of the enemy, to cover the land. It will be in the latter days that I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me, when I am hallowed in you, O Gog, before their eyes. And Ezekiel helps us understand what, what is the purpose of this great final battle. This is so that God's power and majesty will be seen in all the world and his great victory over his enemies will be completed. This will all happen when Jesus comes again. This is the same thing that's happening in chapter 19 when Jesus comes riding on the white horse. And this is helpful for us, again, Um, we're about to celebrate the 160th anniversary of the Battle of Gettysburg in 1863 in in July. And uh, many historians think that uh, the Battle of Gettysburg was the turning point in the Civil War. Uh, The the Confederacy had gotten up all the way into Pennsylvania, and if they had won there, it would have been uh, uh, hugely demoralizing to the North. And almost pinpoint one moment in that battle when... uh, Uh, Pickett sent 15,000 of his soldiers up Cemetery Ridge and just they 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 got blown away by the north and the battle turned 
And, uh, and that was it. it, it the, the South was never going to win that war after that battle. And yet the war lasted two more years. And many people died. And many people's lives were disrupted. And many difficulties ensued, even though the, the end result had been set. And, and this is very much what John wants us to understand about the time in which we live. This is the devil's bound in terms of deceiving the nations, but the devil is still a roaring lion looking around for who he can devour. He still is able to create mayhem and make our lives difficult and cause Christians to suffer. And so uh, John doesn't want us putting on rose-colored glasses and pretending like, hey, you know, everything's easy and good. That's not what the Bible teaches. It says we're, we're in a battle. We still have a long way to go, uh, but the, the end result is certain, uh, even though there's going to be this time of intense persecution just before Jesus returns. Uh, fourthly, when Jesus does return, you will experience complete victory if you belong to him. And this we see in verses 9 to 15, really the emphasis on the end of the chapter. The situation looks very bad. In verse 9, they went up on the breath. This is the enemy. Comes up on the breath of the earth and surrounds the camp of the saints. The saints are just a little camp. They're camping. And uh, they've got armies all around them. And it looks like the situation is dire and there's no hope. But then you just, you go right away into the outcome, right immediately into the outcome. So you know the outcome's never uh, been in doubt at all. So they're all surrounded. And then what? Fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. That's it. It's all over. Verse 10, the devil who deceived them is cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That incredible idea, the devil himself, the source of all your pain and suffering and the world's pain and suffering, that monster himself is going to be thrown into the lake of fire. The beast and the false prophet, every institution that fights against God's people will be destroyed. And this is when as it says, Jesus comes back. Verse 11, I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. This is what's sometimes called the white throne judgment. Again, drawing on Daniel 7. And it says then that in verse 12, I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God and the books were open. So this is a picture of the final judgment. When Jesus comes again, uh, all people will receive their bodies back again. There will be a general resurrection and then everyone will stand before God for judgment. John 5, 28, Jesus says something very similar. He said, do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. And this describes it as books being open in Revelation 20 and the dead being judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. And the books have obviously God's will, God's, uh, God's knowledge of the events there. And it might be, if you read that, you're thinking, oh, well, if I've been a good boy, then I, I'm gonna, uh, I'll be rewarded, and if I haven't, I'll be punished. That's not at all what it's saying. Because no one has in those books a record that is going to merit their salvation. The question is, when the books are open, is Jesus Christ's righteousness credited to you or not? And if you or me are standing there 
in our own righteousness, we are going to join the devil in the lake of fire. It's only those who are represented by Jesus who are going to be ushered into, as Jesus calls it, the resurrection of life. And then in verse 14, it tells us this wonderful truth, something that we can all rejoice in, because it says, um, death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. The death itself is going to be destroyed so that there will be no death anymore for God's people. And, and it's sobering. The lake of fire, very sobering. Verse 10, uh, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Conscious, eternal punishment. That's what the Bible teaches. Not pleasant to think about. But we need to be warned uh, about what awaits those who are not in Christ. But what a triumph for the believers. William Hendrickson, when Satan also is hurled into the lake of fire and brimstone, not a single enemy is left to vex the church. We are conquerors. Indeed, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For not only do we triumph over every foe, but we also live and reign with Christ. I mean, it'd be great. We like to say, Lord, could, I, could you open the book and let me see if my name is written there? And the answer is no. The question really is, do I love Jesus Christ? Have I put my faith in Jesus Christ? And if you have, you know with absolute certainty that your name is written in the book and you will live with him forever and ever. Some years ago, uh, Bloomington South High School here made national news, not in a good way, unfortunately. The girls basketball team played Arlington and beat them 107 to two. And uh, I, I don't know, I wasn't there. I don't know how that happened, but 107 to two. And um, so it was, it was actually, it, you know, it was quite a, a stir and, and they were calling for the coach's head. How could he let that happen? And that's, that's not a good thing in sports. But recognize that's what's being described here. A victory that is so complete, so thorough, there's not a shadow of doubt about what's going to happen as the Lord Jesus comes back and puts his enemies away. And so often we're drawn to living like, I don't know, it could go either way. I'm not sure how it's going to end up here. I mean, we find ourselves talking and thinking like that, don't we? And the passage is here again to remind you there is absolutely no doubt about the Lord's complete and utter victory. And, and this is important to us because, again, it looks, you know, we, we feel like we're fighting on all these different fronts and the, 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 our society is telling us we can turn girls into boys and vice versa and um, uh, anyone can get married and just all kinds of things. It, it, it just seemed unthinkable even a short time ago and uh, very difficult, right? What, what, and you feel like, oh, we're getting attacked from here and there and everywhere and how do we fight this? We have to remember who the real enemy is. It's so easy to be distracted by the things that are coming at us. It's the dragon, the dragon that's behind it all. And Jesus Christ is going to obliterate the dragon fully and completely. And that's a tremendous encouragement that when Jesus returns, you and I will experience that victory 
if we belong to him. So finally, then, that's the challenge to us. Since you live and reign with Christ, labor faithfully now, even as you keep your eyes on his promises. The the passage wasn't given to us to make timelines and to debate endlessly about when Christ is coming back. It was given to us to encourage us and to show us these two realities that we need to keep in mind at the same time. One is that we are in a battle to undeceive the nations, that the devil has been restrained, but that he is still a real power. We know who we're fighting against, but we also know the outcome. We have to live as those who know the outcome. And what an encouragement that should be to us. Because there certainly be times in your life when you look ahead and you think the situation's hopeless. The situation's hopeless, but it's not. It's not. In Christ, there is always the certainty of victory in him. Our family had a great time in, in Maine. The weather wasn't great, but the weather being what it was kept all the smog from the Canadian fires away from Maine. So we, we definitely trade off a little cloudy weather for smoke. And as we were going out there, somebody told us, you've you got a bike. If you're in Acadia National Park, there's miles and miles of, of biking trails. So we took bikes out there. And since we were stopping, you know, in New York and in uh, Connecticut and in Boston area and New Hampshire, I thought, I got I to gotta have locks for these bikes. So we were taking the bikes on the back of the, of the vehicle. And so I spent some money to buy a chain, uh, two chains, actually. And uh, we had the chain wrapped around these four bikes. And uh, somebody looked at it and said, it'd be easier to steal your car than to get these bikes away from the car. So, okay, I've got it right. And so we get out there. Uh, we've invested a lot in, in keeping these bikes secure. Sure would make sense if we use them. And recognize, we just read a passage about a giant chain that is a picture of the devil restrained. And that chain was expensive. That was really expensive because Jesus Christ had to pay for that with his life. And the humiliation and the degradation and the abandonment and all that he suffered, that's what that chain cost. And you understand what Jesus did to bind the devil for us not to embrace the work that he's inviting us to participate in. It it doesn't make any sense. If we understand what the Lord has done to restrain the devil, so you and I could hear the gospel and respond, but so that people all over the world can hear the gospel and respond. And he invites you to participate with him in that work. And that was a beautiful thing about the presentation this morning. What did he say? Every Christian is called to mission. At some point in that funnel, he showed us whether you're sending, whether you're praying, whether you're actually going, every one of us has a role in that. And the reason that's true is because of this passage, because the devil has been bound. Now, now is the time to serve the Lord. You and I have this great privilege, and by his grace, uh, may we enthusiastically join in.
Let's pray and we'll ask him to help us do that. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this, this book, which is so rich with its pictures, and it depicts for us such an important reality that you, Lord, in, in your ministry, in your death, and in your resurrection, you have bound the devil so that the nations can no longer remain in darkness. Lord, that's the only reason we're here, and uh, we thank you for that, and how we pray that you would help us to labor uh, along with you as you undeceive the nations. And we pray, Lord, that we would have our eyes continually on these promises, uh, that if we die, uh, we, we, join, we join you reigning in heaven, awaiting that great day when you come again, and the final resurrection and eternal life with you. Um, but that we would use our time while we're here to faithfully pursue the ends that you have for the world. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. And we'll sing now back to the Lord in praise from Psalm 72c, um, a psalm which speaks about the, uh, the growth of the kingdom like grass growing in the field, expanding, and uh, that is the work of our Lord as he works through his church. Psalm 72, Selection C. Let's stand and sing our praise to the Lord.